Hey everyone, this episode covers the cornerstone of our business consulting capability, which is called PAR, Practice Analysis Review. The idea is a simple one. First, how can we identify opportunities or challenges in your business today? And then more importantly, how can we help you take action and execute? And it sounds straightforward and simple, but our approach is incredibly unique. You're also going to want to hang around for our final segment, which is called Just Stop It. It could very well be the ramblings of a madman, but I think you'll get a kick out of it. And as always, you can send us ideas, questions, and feedback at thewholetruth@touchstonefunds.com. And if you haven't already, please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast hosting platform. Without further ado, here is our episode on PAR. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. And welcome, everybody, to The Whole Truth from the Bay Area, California. I am Steve Side. And from Atlanta, Georgia, I am Kurt Dupuis. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to tackle probably the single biggest underlying aspect of everything that we do around practice management. It has been known in many forms, but where it is settled to be generic across firms is PAR, the Practice Analysis Review. So today, we're going to tell you what that is, where it comes from, and what are the crucial pillars of our analysis and what we do with that analysis. So when we talk about PAR, Practice Analysis Review, what does that mean? Well, what it means is we have become experts at taking a big whopping heap of data that many firms offer that no one knows what to do with. People at home office don't know what to do with. Sales managers in the region do not know what to do with it. And we have really mined this data and to make it useful for advisors with the ultimate goal of helping them run more profitable, more efficient, and more defensible practices. And just like this podcast, we don't do any of this without something actionable. So we take this mountain of data and think something more the size of Mount Everest, not the Blue Ridge Mountains here in Georgia. Uh, And we distill it into three actionable pillars, because again, if it's not actionable, it's not useful. And we come up with not only a plan, but we help advisors execute on the field level. So what that means is we as wholesalers are the local accountability partner to work with advisors to make sure that the goals that they find through this data are actually executed upon. So let me talk about why we've been more impactful than others with synthesizing the data. The first is that we're able to take, as Kurt described, this big data set and synthesize it down into a few actionable opportunities. But then what's most important is we're not trying to overwhelm, which was where I see other practice management programs fail. They throw a huge project at someone and say, okay, get going. We're not trying to overwhelm. What we're looking for are what are the one or two small things that you might want to take action on? And then most importantly, and this is this is the, the key to our success, is we're able, able to help you execute. Now, what does that mean? Let's take something like investment cleanup. You know, you open up a lot of these books, and Kurt, you've seen them. How many different mutual funds and ETFs, I mean, do you see in these books? Hundreds, if not thousands. Yeah. I mean, some people have clean books, but the more often than not, you open up a book, you see a few hundred mutual funds and about a hundred and change orphan funds. And so if you were to go to an FA and you'd say, okay, we're going to go ahead and clean all that up, they see this huge project, even if they're the most motivated team that you'll come across, 
they just end up going back to day-to-day work. They have good intentions. So how do we get around that? We get around that by giving them bite-sized pieces for them to do over time. It's not about cleaning up 300 mutual funds. It's about cleaning up this one household over the next week or two weeks. It's about cleaning up these three positions over the next week or so. And so we take these little bite-sized pieces to not get in the way of your business, to make it completely manageable. And so when we look back six months, you've made some real progress without really disrupting your business which I think is the, the kind of the key to all of it. That execution piece, I shouldn't be, we, truthfully, we shouldn't be saying it over a podcast because th- that is the secret sauce with all this, but, but, but it really does help. And it's not just for what we're talking about with parts, anything related to the practice. And my, my simple equation to help advisors understand that they don't have to make these gigantic leaps on a day-to-day basis, it's progress over perfection. Right? Yeah. Like we're, we're just, we want someone to be able to look back in three, six months and say, yes, this has been helpful. So I'd say the three pillars really quickly, and then we'll break them down in the next segment. Sure. The, the three pillars that we tend to look at at most shops are three of the biggest trends that are really unsolved for in the wealth management world. And the first is advisory conversion. So we all know that that's a big trend that's taken place in the industry over the last really couple decades. So how can we identify and execute on some opportunities there? Secondly, we did a whole series of podcasts on this topic, and that's client optimization. How can we find the the most robust, meaningful relationships, find more like that, while at the same time right-sizing our service for those that maybe are not at the top of the book? And then lastly, something you've already alluded to is what we would call book optimization investment cleanup. Um, so we'll talk about some stats and figures around all of those. And you you can start thinking about where you might stack up. And then we'll talk about how we help advisors make progress while maybe not reaching perfection. Stick with us. We'll be right back. And welcome back, everybody. So we're in segment two. We're going to talk a little bit about you know, we were pretty general and vague and high level in the segment one. This is where we're going to get into some detail. And we'll first start with where did this practice analysis review come from? And it started with a, a report at Morgan Stanley called MAP, which is their managed asset profile report. And, you know, a lot of the partner firms got to see this this huge report. I think the firm had huge expectations for, for what it could accomplish. But they ran into challenges when they distributed out to the field force, and it was completely overwhelming. You know, just as Kurt described, that humongous data set where advisors opened up and they said, "Whoa, okay, there's some interesting stuff," but I'm just going to go back to calling clients, and so no one really took action. And so that's kind of where this originated, and we got really, really good expert, in fact, at looking at MAP. And again, I talked about why we were successful in the first portion, but that's where it where it came from. And then we got so good at it, and we did it you know, hundreds and hundreds of times at Morgan Stanley that we started to approach other firms and we've built these reports at a lot of the different firms where we can go in, where we can mine the data and identify some opportunities and help you execute. Yeah. So a couple of the, the big differentiators for other shops that I think talk about practice management is is one, they don't have the analytics background that we do. Yeah. So I really love that analytics is the the launch pad for what we do. We're not taking guesses. We're not using averages. We, we have clean looks at the data. But then secondly, how we are empowered on the field level as the externals in the field to help advisors 
with this. So, and 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 side, I, sh- I should mention, you know, you have been part of this progress, I would say, at Touchstone since the beginning, and has seen the evolution of us using this data in myriad ways, and really being influential in, in how that exists today. But you, can you con- contrast to maybe six years ago how we would use this sort of data versus how we use it today? Yeah, I uh, thank you for that, uh, that that kudos. This is something that that I definitely That's the only enjoyed. one I'll give you this episode. Yeah, I have enjoyed watching this over time. It actually has been a lot of fun. I think the tables turned for us when we went beyond investments. So what happened when the firms gave this to all the investment partners? Guess what they focused all their attention on? The investment side, That's the it. mutual funds, the ETFs, the SMAs. How can we go in there and say, you're using this, it's not good, use us? That that was the if I had to summarize what every other firm did, it was that. It's the Trojan horse method, right? It's the Trojan and, and by the way, it, advisors can see through that so easily. So and that's I not think, to say that there's zero use for that. There's great use. There's great use in that. We, yeah. I think we just found a little bit more. Well, I think I think when you can when you could be an objective business partner. Uh, as opposed to someone that's selfish and looking for goals for yourself, when you can, you know, get to that point where you're a partner, that's where the relationship changes. So again, nothing against fun cleanup. We do it too, but we just think that we want to become a bigger partner than that. So that was a big thing for us was, was going beyond the investments. And I think like any other program, we spent a lot of years figuring out, you know, which of the data points were actually actionable. There's some things on paper, and firms do this all the time, where they say, oh, look at this great data. This should force an advisor to take action. But a lot of things can be sort of drummed up in an ivory tower that aren't necessarily. It happens on any side of the business. It happens on our side of the business, too. So it was this thing of moving beyond investments and then figuring out what was really actionable and then doing it over and over and over again. So you learn things when you do this types of exercise hundreds of times. We, we learned about things that went beyond the data, right? You saw the same situations and challenges over and over again. So those are some of the things, Kurt, that come to mind. Yeah. And it's completely tailor-made because you know you can look at, and we're going to talk about some averages because we looked at a, thousands of these and we'll, we'll talk about some of those averages, but no advisor is the average, right? No one's business is the average. So using the experience that we've gained through- through the whole team, not, not just us as wholesalers, but the other teammates that we rely on, having that experience is also paramount to having success because it's not just looking at the numbers and saying, okay, well, you're you're slightly below average on this um, and how can we ramp this up? It, it's There's as much art to, to science with this. Yeah. But but now, Kurt, we've we've sort of uh, there's enough setup at this point, so let's get into it. What are what's the data that we are actually looking at here? Well, in its mo- most robust form, we take this Mount Everest of data, tens of thousands of data points, hundreds of different columns in Excel. We aggregate them into one page, and the three main pillars of what we have on that page, which we call the dashboard, are the advisory opportunity, the Client optimization, book optimization. So, advisory opportunity side. Since you've done the most of this, let's like, a little bit of a Q and A. What is a ballpark number for the average amount of assets an advisor has in advisory? So I don't have the exact data, but I'm going to guess th- somewhere between thirty and forty percent. Yeah, that's that's about right. It's thirty. Yeah. It's, it's a third. Which is interesting because at this point, people think, oh, you know, the industry has been moving towards advisory forever. 
there's nothing left to do. If we could have moved our book to advisory, it would have been done. And yet we're at 30 something percent. And people also confuse that the amount of revenue that's recurring, which they associate. So if they think they have a fee-based practice to say, oh, well, 95% of my fee is is recurring revenue. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the percent of assets, not the percent of revenue. Right. And so it's really simple. If And then if you say to yourself, okay, I want to move towards advisory, what are the assets I should be looking at to do it? And that's what we're answering with that data point. Yeah. What's the highest amount in advisory you've ever seen? I've seen small books. This this is in you, you know you're talking about less than seventy five million in revenue. I've seen a number that's eighty and change percent in advisory. Eight? Oh wow! I've seen seventies. I've seen low yeah. low seventies. I think uh, for like what I would call. God, it's it's hard. I don't love to say, you know, what's the average assets because my Bay Area number is going to be different than yeah. someplace else. But I think of my run and run of the mill advisor out here, you know, the the biggest numbers I see is like sixty and change percent. That's the people that are kind of leading edge. Yeah, and so you know, based off the data that we can get here, there's there's many different shoot offs we can have. So obviously, the the most actionable item here is well, let's find what's not an advisory but that could potentially move over to advisory. What what at least structurally makes some sense and identifying those assets and, and starting to engage in a plan to, to help convert those. Yeah, and I think, by the way, in any one of these, we're, there's some offshoots that we share with you that are almost like bonus statistics. And this goes again with doing hundreds of these where we found out all these different data points. So in our advisory section, we also tease out some other numbers that may be useful to you to drive revenue or move to more fee-based. And that's, you know, how much cash do you have in so- on the sidelines? Do you have clients where you're not getting full wa- wallet share in terms of, you know, IRA assets? So we we add some other things in there during this section as well. So it's not just like a raw advisory number. We've got a few different cool things there. Yeah. At, at the end of the day, if, unless you can attach certain client relationships to these opportunities, this is all useless and it's just numbers on a page. So that's where we try to take the idea that's in black and white on paper, but also match it up to to where those opportunities are housed. Uh, and that's where we start building a game plan. Yep. So item two, Nan, we talked about advisory. Item two is client optimization. So you've talked about it a little bit, but spend a little bit more time on what we're doing there. Well, let's just talk about some averages. Sure. Um, average ROA, return on assets that we've seen in the business. Uh, it, it, it really surprises me how I always ask people to guess this number. They go all over the place. So you've done quite a few of these. What's, yeah, what's the number this size? Is, God, you're challenging me today. I, I think it's not far off from the advisory number percentage, actually. I want to say 40 something percent, 40 to 50 percent, 40, 50 basis points ROI. Am I off? I th- that That's a little low. Uh, so the, the dead average is the low 60s. Let's call it 62. Oh, it's the low 60s. That's, that's higher than I thought. Yeah. Um, the main metric that you would not be surprised to hear that would that affects that ROA number is how much you have in advisory. So obviously, yeah. the, the more that you have in advisory, the higher your ROA tends to be. Correct. So uh, this is all about, to, to me, this is about freeing up time for folks. So how many clients are you dealing with? Do you have a service model that, that appropriately services these? Are you delivering that next level of service that we talk about? The number that we often quote for a number of households that an advisor can 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 really maintain effectively is probably somewhere around the 125 range. We 
talk to folks each and every day, right? That have five, 600 households and, you know, they have a good business. So we're, you know, we're, we're not the folks that, that come in and say, look, you need to chop this down, but we do want folks to be aware of both the, the benefits and maybe some of the potential pitfalls of having so many households. Yeah. So, I mean, again, back to it, what is your ROA? Is there an opportunity that we can do to increase that ROA? What are the clients that are holding that ROA down? And then how do you think about actually servicing that whole thing? When I think about that, that kind of encapsulates where I spend most of my time in that center bucket. Same here. Assuming you're talking to someone who's largely converted to advisory, because we we present this as kind of a waterfall that if you're not a high advisory person, that you might get the most bang for your buck as far as time spent. But since a fair number of the people that we do talk to are, that second book of client optimization is typically a, a pond worth swimming in. Yeah. And that's that's the point of, in some cases, we come to teams and they want to work on seven different things, which is always nice that they see all this opportunity, but we're going to narrow you down. And if one bucket is going to be more impactful to your business, that's going to take care of some of those other things, like Kurt's talking about our advisory, will likely steer you in the direction. But again, it goes back to whatever the advisor wants to work on. And, and forgive uh, you know a certain level of hubris here, but you know the single variable that we found with whether or not we're successful, and by successful, I mean measurable statistical success in a certain bucket that advisor wants to work on, is advisor engagement. Like I said, we're, we're the Google speaker. We, we can bring anything into fruition, but it's how dedicated our, our clients or prospects or advisors that we're working with are going to be engaged with this content. Yep. And some other things on this middle bucket, I'll just throw some things out there, Kurt. I hope you don't mind. Junior partners, mergers and acquisitions, teams forming together, all of that can be greatly enhanced by the middle bucket and thinking about you know the number of different clients you have, the segments of clients you have, coverage, all those things. So that's yeah. another some some other cases that we work with there. So kind of going in a waterfall format, we first talked about an advisory opportunity, how we can help identify and impact a, an advisor's book to convert more assets to advisory. Secondly, how do we optimize the client mix and client optimization? And thirdly, this is something that we know other folks talk about. We, they probably don't do it quite like we do it, but it's what we call book optimization. Society, do you want to tell the folks what that entails? Yeah, it's the investment cleanup portion where we're looking at the number of different mutual funds, we're looking at the number of different ETFs, how many of those are orphans, which means they only show up once in your book. We can get into other things like individual equities, but the whole idea is tightening up the investment piece. And you know, there's many reasons to do this besides the outcomes for clients and things like that, but in a world now of like Reg BI and you know having to provide documentation on investment selection and just general efficiency, having cleaner books just make a whole lot of sense right now. Yeah. And so, you know, if I, how I often think about them, advisory is more money, right? Where the, the, the main intent there is to drive revenue. You could argue that you could take a few different routes to do that, but principally that's what I see is converting to advisory is, is growing the revenue of the practice with client optimization. The second bucket, I see that as just more time. You know, that's when you're getting efficiency. That's when scale comes into play. And then lastly, with book optimization or the working on the investment lineup, that's de-risking your book. That's making your book defensible. 
right? It's, uh, some people sleep fine at night knowing that they have 500 unique mutual fund strategies in their book, but knowing that they're not really following them all. Some people sleep fine with that. That's great. Other people want to work on that. But at the end of the day, that bucket is meant to make your practice more defensible. Yeah. And I want to take some time now after, now that you know the three different buckets, to go through some common questions that we get around PAR. Kurt, you can feel free to toss them in, but I'll throw a couple of the common questions that I get. One is, how much are you guys getting paid uh, from the service? <laughs> I love that's this my, question. That's my favorite question because yeah. they see the value of it and they're like, what are you getting out of it? What we're getting out of it is building a different kind of partnership with the FA that they haven't had from our side of the business. Yes, throughout the process, if we can help on the investment side, we will do that. But our number one goal, honestly, is just to make practices run better. Yeah, so I love that. I love that question because it just shows that that this resonates with people, and and that that clearly we're fluent in, in how to go about this. Next question is: What kind of results can I expect? And the answer is: It depends. Because what you get from us is an accountability partner. You get a coach, you get someone who lays out those goals at time. And what we're going to do is work through things at a pace that makes sense for your business. But what I can tell you is you are going to get what I would describe, and I know this is generic, is meaningful results. We're going to do it over time, but when we look back at our efforts together, you will definitely describe them as meaningful. Well, and that's a little... It's, a, it's self-serving for us too, but in a good way, right? Because if we can't say, hey, we had this conversation on January 1st and how many conversations, how much work we've been doing over six months and rerun the said data on July 1st or January 1 of the next year. If we can't visually and emphatically like demonstrate, yes, this has been worth your time, then again, how, how actionable is this? How useful is it? So- That's right. Uh, Results do vary, but the important thing is that we should be able to show some sort of results. Otherwise, we're spinning our wheels. Yeah. And expect accountability partner when you talk about results. Expect it. You know. Yeah, buddy. I don't know how you you approach it, Kurt, but I set goals. Again, we talked about these manageable and very achievable goals that if you show up to a meeting and you said you're going to do something over the last five weeks and it's it's very easy to do it, and you, oh, you know, I didn't do it. You know, it's our job to push back and and keep you moving on that. That's just part of our job. We're not we're not here to to be you know the excuse maker. You know? That's it. And so, what other questions do I get on this? Um, do we see your clients? No, we do not see your clients. We are able to manipulate data and help you um, do things on the back end where you can get things to the household level, but we absolutely never see your clients. Final question I'll throw out. There's probably a few more, but what qualifies us to do this? We have a dedicated team back in our home office, which is Cincinnati, Ohio, that's almost exclusively dedicated to the analytics and to the the data and anything that's PAR related. It is a primary strategy for us. We are getting trained on this constantly. We are consistently making this better. So what makes us qualified to do this? It's our core competency. It's something we spend a lot of time and we focus on getting better at. Yeah. A lot of people go to, they go to sales meetings and they talk about sales reports and they talk about the products and updates on the product. We, we flip that completely on its head is what we spend the majority of our time is talk. How can we engage with advisors practices? Yeah. And then, yeah, well, here's some market updates and you know, you've got to know what you're talking about on the product side, but it's 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 not our go-to. Our DNA, I, I don't know when it happened because I haven't been here as long, but at some point our DNA shifted to to being 
a, a product-based company like many are to a practice management value add type company. So we spent a ton of time on it, not just thinking about it academically, but actually getting our hands dirty with advisors and working through this. So that's what gives us credibility in doing this. Yeah. And, and the other reason that we don't jam product is we know through the process, we're probably going to be able to help somewhere. We're pretty deep on that front. So it's not like we need to be paranoid or any anything yeah. about that. We can usually find ways to help. So in summary, what is PAR? PAR is a, is a, we're taking a big data set, data that you guys are throwing at you all the time that you may not, not know what to do with, and we're synthesizing down to a one-page report. We're going through that report with you. It's usually one page long, and we're going through some potential opportunities, not because we want you to do all those opportunities. We want you to select what you feel are the biggest opportunities. Then when you decide what you want to work on, you've got an accountability partner, you've got a planner, you've got a full team behind you that actually helps you execute at the pace that makes sense for you and your business. So when we look back, we've made some very real progress, and that is a huge improvement on the current state. So what's the takeaway from this episode? Well, we would argue, run a par with us. That's probably a good takeaway from this episode. If you haven't gone through this exercise with us, you know it's worth undertaking. But the other, for those that want to do on their own, is you've got a lot of data at, at your disposal. Don't ignore it. Dig into it. Try to figure out what's useful because it's better to, you, there's so much more you have at your fingertips now than you had 10, 15 years ago. And it's gold. So with that summary, we we appreciate that. We're going to come back with our segment three, which is going to we're going to have some fun in segment three this time. Kurt. Here we go. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different than usual. So this is the whole truth. Stick with us. So today we have a new segment that instead of ending with the Costanza Corner, it's going to be in the spirit of the Costanza Corner, but we're going to call it Just Stop It. So where we're going to get Steve going on some rants on some things that really bother him. So, and I don't know what that's going to do for you, but for me, much like the Costanza Corner does, it's going to put me on a high note to end this episode. So Steve, where do you want to just stop it? Yeah, I, I've started taking notes on things that really bother me. I have to try really hard to be positive. I am a positive person, but it takes effort. It's not natural. So are there things in day to day that just drive me crazy? And that's what this segment's about. I'm going to give you three of those, I love okay? It. All right, you're in a presentation, you're in a discussion, it's usually in front of a lot of people. Somebody goes in front of the microphone or talks about the group and they start talking about a subject that they want to talk about. And they stop that. And right in the middle of it, they say, and I was just talking to so-and-so about that. Have you ever done, have you ever been in a meeting like that? So they'll say, for example, hey, you know, I think that this strategy is something that we should undertake. And I was just talking to John and Scott about this before. And then they'll continue. Have you ever heard that, Kurt? I have, but I don't see it, why that bugs you so much. It happens all the time. And I'll tell you why it bothers me. It adds absolutely nothing to what they are saying. It derails it. So they're, what, they're, what they're trying to do is just give themselves some credibility to what they're saying. Exactly. And to me, it looks insecure. So, Kurt, I really? think we should start a, con a podcast. I was just talking to Martha, Dave, and Jack about – I was just talking – it adds nothing to what I'm telling you. You can skip over it. It does not – so this does not bother you. This drives me absolutely bananas. Completely disagree with you on this one. Okay. Because okay, if, you're, if you're talking about a subject with a person – and let's not forget presentation, just one-on-one -on -one with somebody. You're talking to someone and trying to 
exude credibility or or socially, right? There's there's tons of cues it's that we have socially. Credibility. It's, it's not. false credibility. Because when you can say, oh yeah, I've, I've had the same conversation with Bob, and then they go around and they talk to Bob, they're going, oh yeah, Steve actually knows what he's talking about with this. He's not just blowing smoke up my rump. Um, I think that there's probably circumstances where it, you're just at fair point. There's probably circumstances where that's true. Most of the time, it's just filler nonsense. Okay. So that's my first one. Stop saying, stop saying, I was just talking to, to da, 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 da about this. Well, just for the record, I'm not going to just stop doing that. I'm actually going to do it more now just to bug you. Thank you. Please don't do it in front of me because it'll make my brain explode. Okay. There's another one that's just like this that that people do to add credibility. I'm going to save that for my final one. Okay. The second thing to just stop, everyone, I I understand we're in a different period in history in a lot of ways. Like every every time period is unique. But don't you feel like nowadays everyone just loves to throw, this is the biggest thing in history. This is the most robust in history. Everything is the most substantial thing in history. First of all, you don't know all of history. Second of all, this time period is probably not the most the of anything. It's a long year. It's probably been done before. I just find this now. It's like the 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 thing that everyone has to say is it's it's the most important in history. And you know what? It's pure narcissism, is what it is. So I think what you're talking about in the English language is known as a superlative, right? It, it, where something is meant to describe something that is superb. It's at the top. There is no equal. Yeah, we do overuse the crap out of that. We overuse you're, the crap you're right out of that. Now, there's some and things I'm the where worst that's, offender of that. There's some things, some times where that's appropriate, but not everything that any of us do are the biggest, are the greatest, are the smallest, are in history. Okay, it's just let's let's just stop that. And my last one, and this is very much related to my first one, so you may disagree. And this happens all the time when I'm watching the news: is people throw the word "right" in there and everything they said, which is just filler nonsense. What does that mean? I'm telling you, Kurt, I think the sky is blue. So I'll come on your air and I'd say, Kurt, the sky is blue, right? And then like they throw these random rights in there as if that adds, it's again, it's insecurity. What they're trying to do is get their audience to say right It's a vocal cue, yeah. But they're not, the audience isn't doing it. They're writing themselves. Hmm. And this happens all the time. Like if I turn on a news and I know we can poke fun at all kinds of different like panels on news stories. But you notice every one of them just say right after everything, you know? The stock market just came down today, blah, 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 right? Like they just throw random rights There, in there has been an yeah. increase in in the word right in common vernacular. But my question is, is it the grammar that offends you or the societal implications that offend you so much? I think it's just, I don't like things that are just filler, that you use it to try to build credibility, but if you took it out, nothing is lost. It's just filler words. You know what else is? Okay, I'll add another one that people do. See, all and I'm the susceptible time. to all of these because I I don't start these trends, but I notice them, and then I feel like if other people are saying them, I say something like that. I feel like that's another one. That, that yeah, doesn't I feel mean like, anything. Feel yeah. like doesn't mean anything. No, it's like um, I think that right. I, I, I think that yeah. It, so in yeah. my head, I know that, but I hear you hear it so much, you just so that, see now you're getting me. Going, but you know what's another bad one? Literally. Ob- literally. Literally is bad. I got another bad one. Obviously. People love that one. Obviously. That, 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 well, no, it's not obvious. <laughs> like, what, what are you talking? So anyways, I that is the stuff that is happening 
that is trying, and I know I'm trying to say positive, but this is this is my my air. I can vent on this podcast too, can I? <laughs> the, well, the the funny part for me with all this and why I am going to end up on a high note is I am susceptible to all of these things. So I feel like this was a really circuitous way just to say you don't like how I talk. Obviously, that's what I'm saying, right? So, you are literally the worst. I are literally the worst. So hopefully you got a laugh out of this. So the takeaway here is be you and say whatever you want, and you're going to annoy Steve no matter what. So don't stop it. That's fair. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next time. Have a good one. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC. FINRA and SIPC.